You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 22. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the CSB Podcast. So glad you can join us today. Today's episode features none other than Jonathan Waller from Dysphagia Cafe. So for all of you people who've been waiting for these adult-themed episodes, and we're going to use adult-themed in the, the most, uh, in the cleanest sense, here it is. So our first episode on dysphagia and uh, Dysphagia Cafe, for those of you who, uh, who are working in the adult medical field, you already know what Dysphagia Cafe is. It's pretty popular out there. And Jonathan started this thing about two years ago, and it's really caught on. Wonderful website. It's at dysphagiacafe.com. If you haven't been there already, there's a great uh, blog section, uh, resources. So anything anything and everything about dysphagia, uh, he features guest posts, uh, reaches out to not just uh, SLPs, but uh, doctors, and uh, other professionals who are big in, in the field of dysphagia. And uh, it's my pleasure. I was able to talk to Jonathan on his lunch break. So uh, we were able to squeeze that in. So if the, if the voice quality or if the, vo- if the quality of the audio doesn't sound exactly 100%, it's because he's on his uh, cell phone uh, chatting with me. I don't know if he was able to go into a quiet room or whatnot. But anyway, so yeah, Jonathan was gracious enough to take some time out of his day to uh, to talk with me about all things dysphagia. And we had a really nice wide-ranging discussion today. I'm just pulling out this piece of paper here. I've just scribbled a whole bunch of notes here. And you'll have to excuse me. I'm a little jacked up on caffeine. Um, dysphagia Cafe, what do we talk about? We talk about uh, some early mentors he had in the field. We talk about uh, for those of you who haven't heard about MDTP, so this is the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Protocol or program. And uh, I'd never heard of this before. And it, it makes sense because I think this protocol came out about uh, six or seven years ago, I think he was talking about. Um, so we talk about a whole lo- whole number of things. And, you know, I, I've, my, my uh, take on this podcast is really starting to evolve a bit. One of the things I want to get, what I, one of the things I want you all to get out of these uh, podcasts is I want some immediate takeaway information that you can go right back and uh, that'll help you in your in your practice. And so I'm I'm starting to shift my questions to some of my guests here, and I think Jonathan was uh, the first person that I did this with, is to say, you know, what what books or resources uh, have really helped you or changed uh, the way you uh, approach your chosen field in this case, dysphagia that you wish everybody knew about. And uh, you probably heard me ask some of these questions in previous podcasts too. I can think of a couple of uh, examples like that. But um, if you listen to this podcast and look at the show notes at uh, the website, my website, CSP, uh, conversationsandspeech.com, you'll see links to some uh, interesting articles and references that you may not be aware of. And uh, hopefully it can really help your own practice as a medical speech pathologist. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump into this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can email me at jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. And I'm going to repeat that at the end. Here's Jonathan. Thank you so much for listening.
Yeah, yeah, I live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a speech pathologist for about eight years now. Um, I graduated with my master's from Cal State Long Beach, mm-hmm. and uh, this is actually my second career. Oh, so what was I your was, first? Uh, it was uh, in advertising. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of a transition there, but uh, yeah, it's been, been for about eight years now, speech pathologist. Wow. My wife used to be a media buyer. So That's exactly what I did. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was a media buyer, uh, well, assistant media buyer at first. Um, I I started right, I moved to Los Angeles right after 9-11. It was a really horrible timing and uh, to find a job in advertising. Yeah. And uh, what I wanted was uh, uh, the creative end, and but you couldn't be too picky. So I got into buying, and it was interesting for a while. Just um, you know, felt like I needed a long-term change. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Well, my wife always tells me because I didn't know her when she she had she changed careers into teaching, uh-huh. and uh, the thing that she gave up the most. She used to tell me about all the perks. Uh, yeah, exactly. The the pay was horrible, <laughs> but the perks were great. Oh yeah, I got to do yeah. stuff that I would will never be able to do as a speech pathologist again. Yeah, <laughs> um, especially here in. I'm not sure where you're calling from. Are you in uh, Chicago? Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I imagine it's just as cool there as far as uh, perks. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a big sports fan, so you know, you're you're the client and you're the one being smooth, and so I been to like every restaurant in Beverly Hills that I'll probably never be able to afford to go to again and just yeah. met, all, met all kinds of interesting people and um, uh, so it was it was kind of fun for like a first time job for me yeah you know? it was an experience I learned, I learned a lot yeah for sure okay so now let's get into the speech pathology and when you decided to be an SLP yeah. did you immediately know you wanted to work with adults or how, how did that uh... yeah it was it was kind of a whirlwind, actually. Um, just backtrack a little bit. So when I went, when I finished up advertising, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I went back to school thinking I wanted to be an English teacher, and um, I was very wrong. After the first semester, I realized I um, hated Shakespeare and <laughs> would not would not be able to teach it with passion. Somehow was drawn to uh, grammar, linguistics, and really had no idea what I could do with that line of work. Um, so one of my linguistics teachers, and these were core classes, it wasn't someone, you know, I have a professor I didn't have a, like a huge relationship with, but she kind of steered me in the direction when I asked her. And she said speech pathology. And um, I just, I just kind of went with the flow a little bit. I checked out the department. As I did more research, I found out all these relatives and friends of mine were speech pathologists, and I guess I've never been paying attention to what they did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I went into it in first semester, I think was, uh, I got to skip some classes because I was, a, it was my second career. Um, I think it was a speech and hearing science and then neuro and anatomy and physiology. And I really had no idea what I was getting into, to be honest. I, I really had no idea there was a medical side or even an adult side. 
mm-hmm. I guess, you know, I was, you know, probably had the ignorance thinking of, oh, stuttering, speech pathology, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I really had no idea what this mammoth of a career entailed as far as um, the scope of practice. Yeah. And so I really after that first semester, I really, I really love that. And, um, I volunteered at some hospitals and kind of just, you know, schmoozed a little bit with people who were in the area to see if it's something I would even be interested in. I did did not want to find, I did not want to find out that after three and a half or four years of going through, um, that I did not, that I could not stand being in a medical setting. So I, I really wanted to make sure that was something I could do. And I really loved it and attached myself to it. And just, um, and then the whole swallowing part came along and that was a, a bonus, I guess. Um, really had no idea that was a part of the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really loved that and just really uh, focused on that as a specialty. You know, I, I would be the first to say that I'm, I'm not the jack of all trades speech pathologist at all. Um, I, yeah. There's a lot of areas that I wouldn't, I would definitely say you may want to see this person or that person. Yeah. But um, dysphagia is just one of those areas that I just really enjoy and has a specialty. So now being that uh, you work in an acute care hospital, I take yeah. it dysphagia takes about 90% of your uh, working hours. I'd say it's a, probably exactly 90, 95% of, uh, I work I work in acute and I work outpatient and mm-hmm. the way our, our facility is set up is it, it's, you know, it's medical priority and where we are a little understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when it comes down to acute issues with cognitive problems or aphasia, um, we really have to prioritize that to, um, you know, evaluating them for disposition recommendations mm-hmm. rather than seeing them three or four times a week while they're in the hospital, while they're, you know, acutely ill. Right. Um, so it's really just um, focusing on that medical priority as far as uh, getting them eating again and um, getting to getting us that next level of care for at least acute, the acute phase. And it's a, it's a really, it's a really challenging and unique setting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we see, uh, a lot of trauma. Um, we see a lot of head and neck cancer. So on the outpatient side, most of my caseload is either head and neck cancer or progressive neurological disease. Uh, and then on the inpatient side, it's probably uh, a mix between uh, trauma, um, uh, neurological cases, and then you know we see you know our car- cardiothoracic. We get a mix of everything, but general medicine floors. Yeah. Yeah. General medicine, but a, a lot of the, a lot of specialty areas as well. There's, we have a lot of intensive care units here, probably more so than most facilities. Yeah. So most of the time it's the, 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 the patients are very critically ill and, um, they're uh, in the intensive care unit and there's just so many intensive care units. So a, a lot of our areas in that specializing in that area. Yeah. You know, I, I'll have to ask you when I, in my yeah. CFY year, when I worked at a hospital, I remember the first thing, I was overwhelmed by so many things, but I felt like the first, uh, that first year, the most challenging aspect was just 
learning, uh, even beyond my little scope and swallowing, primarily swallowing, just mm-hmm. how all these associative medical conditions played into, yeah. you know, and putting all those pieces together. Because I, I came into the job thinking, oh my God, I feel like I almost need a separate medical degree now for this, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Is, that, is that something you uh, grappled with as well? Yeah, you know, I, it is. And I, I can't imagine that there is a species out there that does not grapple with it. We, I mean, one of the reasons why I, you know, love this specific area is because of the, of the constant learning that medically you have to do. I mean, there's one of my mentors I'll never forget. And it's just like advice that I'll always cherish is that, um, you know, just dysphagia and swallowing is, is not neck up. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, sometimes you'll, you may hear kind of going through your, your practicums or with different students and people will say, Oh, you know, I don't, you know, I'm kind of neck up on that neck down, yeah. but it's just, you know, what we manage, especially on an inpatient level, you know, in my opinion, is we're managing risk. You know, we're managing the patient's critical illness. I mean, what percentage of patients have cranial nerve damage that we're seeing? Not too many, mm-hmm. or at least not the cranial nerve damage that should uh, lead to a severe swallowing problem. No, what we're managing is their risk for infection in their acute state that, uh, you know, and somehow that is associated with their oral intake or after they're extubated. Uh, so it's, it's so much of it is kind of like a game of red light, green light. Yeah. I used to tell a lot of my students and uh, that it's kind of like, okay, let's put on the brakes a little bit. They're going through this issue right now. Okay, now let's be aggressive. And you can kind of just feel how the primary team may start to be more aggressive and almost like in tandem go along and be a little bit more aggressive um, based on their medical situation. So it's, and there's so much we don't know and there's so much we, we do not learn. And it's a little, it's a little scary, you know, what we're, that we are inside supposedly bona fide swallowing experts after the minimal type of education we receive coming into a hospital setting. Yeah, that's that's why uh, so much of it is experience. You have to just get in there and see these you know, these modifieds and do the bedsides over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree it, it, it is about just mitigating risk. I think at the end of the day, you sometimes have cases where there's no there's no uh, defining factor. You have to kind of uh, synthesize everything and make the best decision based on what you have there. Yeah, yeah. and you know, there's there's so many patient populations that are are you, you have to address them so differently. And I'll give an example on an outpatient setting, you take a patient with just in my opinion, you take a patient with severe dysphagia, like a head and neck cancer patient who's been through radiation, who's cognitively intact, and um, you know, doing everything you ask, and you know, they're they're most likely after radiation aspirating to some degree. Mm-hmm. Right? We, you know, say this is like a fifty year old person, and they're walking around town, and they're doing their business, and they're aspirating on a severe dysphagia. Well, they don't. Their risk of pneumonia is so much less than that 
same patient who may be with Parkinson's disease that is in a wheelchair all day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and relying on other people to feed him. So it's it it's such a it's such kind of balancing the whole picture, and that that's 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 what I love. There's, there's such a challenge to look at the whole picture. Yeah. Um, that that we, and we just don't get that kind of education. I think it, globally, I don't think maybe some uh, programs get that type of education, but I think overall it. it it feels pretty lacking as far as what we go into a uh, externship knowing. Yeah. About that point, so. You uh, you mentioned before uh, a mentor who had that phrase that dysphagia is not just uh, neck up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if there's any, are there any books or journal journal articles or other mentors or people that have, or just uh, certain resources that have really shaped the way you see dysphagia, maybe in a way that uh, just our general education did not give you, uh, just aside aside from experience, yeah. you know, is there something you can point to that said, you know, I, I really took a lot from X? Yeah, I, well, just, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to have a mentor named uh, Ken Oishi, um, and he, he, he hasn't written papers or anything, he's just, uh, one of the first person that I came into contact with that really had a, a, a unusual uh, learning for the medical side of things as far as understanding lab. And, we're, and I'm, I'm talking very acute type of uh, speech pathology, like in the acute setting, mm-hmm. to really understand uh, lab values and how that affects the person, understand um, event ventilation and uh, all these things that are just, you know, that we kind of understand pieces of, but he really, really had a, a great understanding. But so he was a huge resource and, you know, the resource that he kind of pointed me into was the critical care doctors and the pulmonary attendants. And so the hospital I started at, we used to have rounds. And um, I remember one time this amazing attending who was there for many years and he kind of taught in an indirect way. And it's uh, hard to know at the time, but then you you take the pieces of information later was, you know, I'd be to the bedside and the patient would be, you know, totally out of it, you know, altered. And he comes in and, he, and he's talking high level stuff to this, to this patient, but he knows I'm also standing right there. Mm-hmm. In a way, I took it like he was talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's talking to his patients like the pundit in the bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, we're not going to start PO today because your labs are this and this and this and this. And I... And then I started to feel like, oh, maybe he's talking to me and trying to educate me a little bit. So I've always felt like I try to keep an open mind on that medical perspective, even though, you know, we may have different uh, feelings or understanding about swallowing. Uh, Dr. James Coyle was one of his, there was a paper he wrote for, uh, I believe, the ASHA leader. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it's it's not, you know, it's a... Uh, it's a short article. I think it was, you know, probably a thousand, two thousand words. To me, it's it's required reading for any intern I have. Mm. It talks about the chicken before the egg, and I don't remember the exact title. I'll butcher it. But yeah. it's basically talking about aspiration risk is chicken before the egg, I believe. Mm-hmm. And basically, what I described before is that what what is hap- what is happening 
with this patient? Are we, is the patient, uh, and I don't want to misquote at all, does the patient have dysphagia, dysphagia before before they have aspiration risk, or is the aspiration risk there and then they are assigned as dysphagia? So it, it's, a, it's a really, it's a fascinating read. To me, it's like a seminal paper, even though, you know, it, it's not in a peer-reviewed journal. It's still just such a, really nails it on the head as far as a medical type of understanding for what we do. It's and a very, a yeah. Lo- a lot of, it's very, very practical. A lot of his seminars discuss things that we never learn in school, like, understanding chest x-rays and pleural effusions and atelectasis and mm-hmm. understanding just risk. And uh, that, that's been a huge influence on how I look at our, how I look at the, the big picture. I know I, I was saying, I'm sure a lot has changed. It's been about 14 years. I was thinking right before I called you since I had <laughs> seen my last uh, swallowing patient, but um you know, you talk about, I, I think that's an excellent point about the chicken and egg thing, because you also, you definitely see uh, patients who have uh, developed a dysphagia just from coexisting medical conditions, and it's like a snowball effect. And I had this conversation not too long ago with another SLP about how detrimental it is for someone to not swallow for any given period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, I was talking, I, I, was, I was saying to her about, uh, we were talking about the fact that as an SLP back then, that I never really bought uh, the therapeutic side of, uh, of swallowing therapy, that you can mm-hmm. do certain exercises, especially when the majority of dysphagias are pharyngeal-based. Uh, I would assume that's that hasn't changed, but uh, you know the idea that um, not swallowing for a given period of time and then trying to, or even after an acute event and trying to get that back just through exercise, I, I've always felt that there was this is a long convoluted way of saying this that our our job was truly more about management than mm-hmm. uh, direct therapy and that the best medicine, if you will, was just practicing swallowing. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you tend to agree with that or? Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that. It's um, my I've I've kind of gone through a huge shift in the way I practice and the way I'm I'm thinking about swallowing. Probably within the last couple of years, and a lot of that's attributed to um, uh, doc, Dr. Crary. Um, from Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and his, uh, uh, Dr. Giselle Carnaby Mann, and with uh, something called the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. And it's, you know, people can look it up, and there's lots of papers on it. The, it's not so much, here's a program, and I'm just going to check, you know, check off that I now certified or anything like that. But what I really gathered from it, because it, it, it is a structured program, but there's so much great information behind it as far as uh, exercise science and real and therapy that's really PO trial driven in a very systematic and higher hierarchical mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, method of doing therapy. And it's definitely meant for a stable patient. You know, I'm not talking about a patient who is extubated, you know, and then you 
do this therapy program on them. But it it totally it totally shifts the way you the way you think, the way we've traditionally been taught, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it really you know, it looks at diagnostic swallowing, it looks at aspiration very differently. It looks at as oh, he aspirated on that barium swallow study, but this is what he aspirated on, and this is what he did when he aspirated, and it's taking all that and putting it into a positive thing that you can use in therapy in a very systematic way. And I, so just for example, I I went to this training, and, and again, it's not to say like, oh, I was trained in this, and now it's like, I do this on every patient. It's, 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 there's definitely criteria, um, but I, there was this patient that I had who was four years NPO, G-tube dependent, mass, massive brain stem stroke, um, just, just a, a gem of a guy, uh, great family support. He had everything, all the external things going for him that you really hope for in a patient, mm-hmm. you know? after not being able to eat for four years and people telling you that you probably won't be able to eat, most people would probably, I don't know, kind of kind of check it, check out a little bit. Yeah. But he continued to seek other options. And just so happens I got back from this course and I was, and he was just a perfect candidate because the idea is this type of therapy was addressed with dysphagia, these most severe cases. And I did it with him, and it was over the course of six, eight weeks. It was very aggressive. I'm at a county hospital, so we're able to see people more frequently than than normally. Um, I saw him four or five times a week. Wow! Uh, and he he was he was on a mechanical soft diet six weeks. Um, to- total oral intake, and it again, it's not. It wasn't. I don't. I don't want to test it as like the miracle therapist or the miracle treatment. It just, it makes a ton of sense. You know, the way his swallowing was, uh, and the way his swallowing is, it's very scary as a traditional therapist because it does not look good. Mm. Even to this day, if, if he was to be admitted to the hospital for a cold, right. Or yeah. a flu. And someone would notice that, okay, he's doing something funky and they order a speech pathologist evaluation and they took him down for a video swallow study, they'd be like, how in the world are you eating? <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, and I told, I actually gave him my card and I said, if you ever, if you're ever admitted to the hospital, please have them call me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. he just, he just, he became a very functional eater for what his ability was. We didn't change the fact that he had a unilateral um, paralysis of his pharynx. We didn't, we, the idea was not to strengthen that, but it, addresses other areas and it really lets you challenge the patient and it's all about swallowing something it so, wasn't about you know, he knew, he knew the masako he knew everything yeah. and he said i don't want to do that anymore i can't do that anymore it's not and we we said okay we're going to eat in therapy and they brought their food in how motivating is that you know and it, <laughs> yeah. you know i'm giving a very general overview that's obviously much more specific yeah, and and long term is he doing promise, okay? I, I promise I wasn't. I promise I wasn't paid to plug this either. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, so you do look at long term. Yeah. Um, obviously, this wasn't a study, or else you know we have the ability to do more follow up. But yeah. um, so he, the idea, 
the idea is you keep track of weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, very detailed diary of what he's eating, what he's tolerating. And so we, two months after I saw him for the last time, he was maintaining his weight on total oral diet. He still had his feeding too, but he was not using it for anything. Mm. Um, and, you know, eight months later, same situation. Wow. So it's his swallowing this is not pretty, but he's eating. Yeah. And you know, it's something he has to he does have to focus on. It's not probably not something he can um uh it, it's effortful. Yeah. But he's doing it safely. So and he can he's uh he can't take his swallowing he cannot take his swallowing for granted at any point. He has to always be mindful. He has to be mindful of it, yeah. Yeah. And uh do, do meals take a particularly long time for him because of the strategies that he's using or Yeah. So it yeah. probably takes him forty five so his strategy is really just an effort it's a it's a essentially an effortful swallow. Enough, yeah. Um and but what he and we focus on that during the therapy, but you know, as far as long term, you know, it I I don't tell him to give an effortful swallow for everything, but just naturally he does it because he probably needs to. Mm, okay. And and he and you know another story he probably needs a medical intervention to help with something with his cricopharyngeus, but that's just another story of whether that'll actually happen or not. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so wow, I was just blown away. It, it, you know, long story short, that was just a real turning point for me as far as what someone can accomplish with something that's PO driven and I find it to be very motivating and um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of with you with as far as <laughs> let's just eat, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you, you know. a question. So this, this um, it's called the McNeil. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's called the, it's called the MDTP, the McNeil dysphagia therapy program. Okay, so I'm, I've been on the loop. Do most SLPs, at least in the states, uh, working in medical facilities, are they? Do you think most of them are aware of it? I I don't think so. Yeah, um, okay, but there's I mean there's no way for me to know exactly. But I think yeah. it's it's I think it's been around for again I'm guessing it's I think the paper was written probably seven eight years ago. All right, um, and um, I would say it, it seems to be catching fire. Uh-huh. And uh, ver- it's very it's a uh, it's very encouraging to see for sure. Okay, I'll have so, to uh, put some links on the show notes for this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you also about, of course, Dysphagia Cafe, your your baby. Yeah. And okay. um, well, first of all, maybe you can talk about what Dysphagia Cafe is and when you launched the sure. site. Sure. It's uh, I launched the site in uh, about two, a little over two years ago. Um, I launched it, I was at a dysphagia research society conference in Seattle, mm-hmm. and I was literally on break, and I went down to Pike Place, and there was a little cafe I went into, and uh, I just sat down, and you know, it's just one of those quintessential moments you have stuff written on the napkin. Yeah. So... Um, that's kind of what happened as far as just really, you know, initially it started as a, a way for me to learn, to help myself learn more and maybe impact others along the way. Um, it started off where 
I was doing a lot of uh, uh, liter- I was going to do literature reviews myself. I was going to do a lot of the writing, and whoever has a blog out there and they write all the content, God bless them. It is really hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is it is unbelievably hard to come up with something original three or four times a month. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that you know. I felt my talents were in, I, I really wanted to fulfill that, uh, do that website and, and facilitate things. You know, I, I, what ended up happening were people, you know, I was getting questions like advice questions mm-hmm. and I get emails on what would you do? What would, you know, do you have a resource for this? And I was like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the direction I want to go. I don't want this to be a, Jonathan Waller expert advice column or anything like that (laughs) because while while I love it there's a ton of people out there who are better at that than I am and so I started to really inquire about uh, just engaging some of the experts in the field Mm -hmm. and my first three articles that were not really uh, me writing were interviews and one was uh, Dr. Ionessa Humbert, one was Dr. Deborah Suter, and then the other was Dr. Michael Crary. And they were, you know, I had some casual, the interviews were really like, I would send them questions and they'd fill out the answers and <laughs> try to make it look good. And, um, okay. you know, some, some of it was, you know, casual, you know, telling you about your favorite coffee and things, fun things like that. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it was, it was, it was fun. And then I was like, you know, I really wanted to go into something a little bit more deeper content. And so I just started to ask individuals that I knew in the field as far as, you know, I did not really have a personal relationship with anybody, but just started to reach out to a couple as far as, um, hey, would you mind writing a thousand word article for me about this topic? You know, and, you know, make, you know, it can be researchy, but not too researchy and, <laughs> I'm, the whole idea was that I wanted it to be a, uh, a, a, a good, almost like a quick, a quick read, but with content and with substance. Yeah. Um, I, the strategy was to, you know, we have this social media platform that, you know, maybe gets a bad rap sometimes in re- the research world, um, but it's an amazing way to deliver something to a large amount of people. And I really started to enjoy engaging in social media. And I found that, you know, with my previous background in, in media and advertising, was, I was almost like a, it started off like a little hobby in a way. Yeah, and I mean, so, it sounds like what you're doing is a little analogous to the podcast that I've launched. Yeah. You know, <laughs> in a lot of ways, it's, it's not meant to yeah. be, it's not meant to take itself that seriously. Where yeah. I, you know, I, I don't proclaim to be an expert. I don't want to be giving out advice like you said. And it just yeah. wants, it's just a way for people to connect. Yeah. And it's, it started really to take on a life of its own. And, um, the, you know, I started to get a little bit more serious about making the website and standards as far as writing and um, written material. And, you know, honestly, I, I can't, I can't do it without the people who've been who've contributed. I mean, yeah. that's the bottom line. And so a, like a, a ton of gratitude goes towards these busy, busy researchers who are writing 
journal articles and then they're agreeing to write something for me. It's I'm constantly um, uh, amazed and really, really grateful for their contribution. So it's just been really just trying to connect and the little slogan is just connecting a global dysphagia community. And, you know, yeah. it's been interesting to really connect with people in Australia and the UK and Netherlands mm-hmm. and, uh, and we have the ability to do it and it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, through a journal article that you have to pay $50 for online, or if you don't have access to a library. Um, so it's not, it's not peer reviewed. Um, but the people who are writing these articles are, they're very well established in our field. And, you yeah. know, if we're going to be doing Google searches for, <laughs> you know, kind of quick answers to learn things, you know, I'm hoping that people come across these articles uh, as, you know, go-to articles. Yeah, um, as another resource, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, a little bit told me that you uh, have some of the same challenges as I do. You you're sometimes are seeking guest bloggers or guest posts. And sometimes it's a challenge to get people to <laughs> to want to engage. And uh, I mean, is, is that the yeah. case? Do I have that right? It, it can be. It can be, it yeah. Can be. yeah. I mean, I, I never take it personally. Oh, uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, again, it's, uh, you know, I try to fathom the 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 grant writing these these, prof- these professors are doing sure. and the, the research they're doing. And so, you know, you know, oftentimes it may be that, Hey, can you, you know, email me in three months and then I'll email you in three months and Hey, try me again in six months. And I never take it personally. And so, yeah. but then others, then others are, um, you know, are very, very quick about it. And they're, yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking me. And, um, yeah, the uh, the other day, I'm really excited about this one coming up. I kind of, almost a legend in our field, he's, he's an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And he, I just said, okay, I'm just going to email him and see what happens. And I, I think I got a draft in about an hour. Oh, really? And I was, yeah, so I was really blown away. And it was just um, really... So it's it's been great. Everybody's been very kind. See, that's the crazy thing is I never... I, I stopped making predictions. You know, <laughs> yeah. Who's going to answer and who's not? Because I've been, I was blown away. I, I mean, I'm not going to give away, but um, a bigger name in our field, uh, about a month ago, yeah. I emailed him asking if he would come on the show. And I thought to myself, I'm not even going to, you know, there's a good chance I won't even hear back. And he answered yeah. me within an hour. <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said you know, I'm really busy right now. Could you, he basically said, I'll do it, but call me or email me in August and we'll set something yeah. up. And so I was like, oh my God, yeah. I, you know, you never know. You really don't know. No, you really don't. And it's, it's, it, you know, I get when I, I've traveled a lot this year, just going to different conferences and opportunity to network and, uh, and getting a chance to meet, meet a lot of these, um, professors and researchers and, and, you know, even beyond that, just your clinicians in the field and, um, the positive response that I get is, you know, really, uh, I really appreciate it. And they just, been, it's just been a great experience and I, I love it. It's, uh, it's, you know, it, it, it started as a hobby and it's becoming something I really, really love. I, yeah, that's I exactly, like, oh. yeah, it's exactly what it's you been know, for me. And I, you know, you can totally, I think you get out of the, out of doing this facial cafe, what I do about getting the podcast podcast. I mean, for one, 
selfishly, it helps you learn more. It forces you to reach yeah. out. So it's just an awesome networking opportunity that you otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. You know? And, you know, other other than being, uh, other than wishing there was more hours in the day, I, I don't know when you do all your prep work and everything, but it's, uh, it seems to be for me like between like 12 and 2 a.m. <laughs> <You know, there's laughs> it's just yeah. like, it, it's nonstop, but it's, I keep thinking like, yeah, if it wasn't something I love, I would not be doing this. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's a lot of work to maintain everything. And but yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, I, love I really it. wish I could. My, I, I wish if I could do it, I would devote an entire day, uh, one yeah. day a week, to doing the podcast and to editing and all the work that goes. Because it it takes. Uh, it depends on the episode, but sometimes it takes me up to four hours to to uh, yeah. plan coordinate record edit, and get everything up just for one episode oh i'm um, sure and yeah so and 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 to think that when you know i'm not writing the material for my website and so if i was doing that on top of you know, yeah I, yeah i i couldn't do it i couldn't do it but there's there's some amazing blogs out there of people who just do a ton of writing and i'm really they're they're amazing people and have been a lot of very inspirational as far as what they do it's just you know, and just wanted to try to take a different twist as far as <laughs> delegating, asking people to contribute their expertise. And I almost want to have my hands up and say, I'm not the expert. I, I, I feel like I'm good at what I do, but there's a lot of people who can write about it a lot better than I can. So yeah, so it's worked out, worked out pretty good. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, I just wanted to give the listeners, for those of you out there who have not been to Jonathan's site, uh, a couple of posts, a blog posts at least, uh, kind of stood out in my mind as being interesting. The one was uh, radiation-associated dysphagia, <laughs> and there was one also on silent aspiration. Now, <laughs> what I, t- I read both of these, and what I took away, it, it was re- both of them were very interested, interesting to me because the one I, I've, I've had the sense over the last uh, 10 to 15 years because I did a lot of work with head and neck cancer, and I'm definitely hearing if I've, if I've got my facts correct that with uh with progress in the field that uh, fewer and fewer individuals have to go under laryngectomies uh there's fewer fewer surgeries more uh radiation therapy would that be correct uh, it definitely seems like it yes yeah and uh in but uh i don't think you know, I, I did all the acute side. I remember another there was another uh, male speech pathologist in the hospital I worked at my first year, and I did a little bit of work in, in Chicago. But he did all the outpatient stuff uh, with head and neck cancer, and so he did some of that, some of the dysphagia therapy. Then he also did a lot with the uh, TEP, which is probably still around, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, we do some at my facility. As well. Okay, so um, yeah, but uh, I I never really because I was always very on the acute side, and I hadn't seen the outpatient. I, I hadn't realized how big of an issue uh, radiation-associated dysphagia. Maybe you could just quickly describe it for uh, listeners. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, most of my outpatients are uh, they're either starting or going through radiation. Um, it's just a uh, you know, it's, I guess in lay terms, it's just like the fibrosis and this hardening of tissues and. Uh, lack of blood flow to certain areas and everything just stiffens up. And, uh, you know, the whole idea is uh, in these patients is to really as safely and efficiently as possible to have them continue eating. 
um, through this process. And it's they're going when they're going through radiation, they're going they're having a lot of pain. They're having all these side effects that are is dysphagia related, but there's just so much more to it, such as pain with uh, uh, you know oral pain from sores and um, dry mouth and uh, not maybe nausea from the chemotherapy that they're going through with the radiation. I mean, it's you know we want to push them to do these exercises, but you know. Jeff, if I, I think if I went through this, I'd probably be the worst patient in the world, honestly. And, and I, re, I, I really try to keep that in perspective when I'm seeing these patients. I, I, I've stopped giving out uh, uh, five, six, seven exercises and a sheet for them to take home. I, I, would, I would rather them focus on the two or three that the biggest bang for their buck that, you know, is obviously related to their issue and tell them to, to eat. As, you know, as obviously as safely what's what's meant for them. It's just it just seems like it's just a, such a such a horrible six weeks. Oh yeah, and yeah. it's it's uh, they're losing a ton of weight. There's often the conversation of pushing them through, whether it's with a feeding tube or without a feeding tube, depending on a lot of factors such as, you know, do they have support? Are they, you know, are do they have a lot of family support at home? Are they uh, are they motivated? Are they laying in bed dehydrated all day, not wanting anything? And, um, there's just and then there is just a just the factors of that go along with a lot of patients that um, you know maybe many of them have been prior alcohol abuse, prior drug abuse, or other. It's not always definite, but often goes along with the patient population that kind of plays into behaviors and yeah um, so it's just i mean it's it's when you see them for an evaluation it's like you're just you're just throwing so much information overload yeah uh, that you know what we what we do at our facility is we have a pathway it's like a head neck pathway and the head neck pathway is ideally let's get them in early to see us not because, not because we're going to change a whole lot necessarily, but maybe if they know enough early on, they know what's coming a little bit. And we found that that's been reducing peg placement because now it's not now we're not treating them in in a crisis situation in five weeks um, down the road when they haven't seen us at all and they've come for the first time and now they're learning about these swallowing problems for the first time maybe or are really getting a chance to digest what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so just that really early intervention and you know that's the same thing with laryngectomy patients. You have like almost like a pre-op counseling. Mm-hmm. You know it, it doesn't change what's going to happen post-op and they're still going to have a lot of questions but maybe having that that constant education throughout the process when they're going through something so life-changing that it can maybe have a better outcome. Yeah. So that's kind of how I focus. I, we, I, my the exercises are important, but I that's not the that's not my huge focus. My focus is getting them to eat if they can, as safely as possible. Uh, helping them understand to keep track of their nutrition and weight. Understand that hydration is really important. Understanding um, what to look for when things are not going well, or how does that feel. And really almost, almost like coach along the way. So, you know, maybe they come back 
every two to three weeks to yeah. route radiation. And There's definitely that human component where you just have to, everyone's different and how yeah. they take it. And you, you got to listen to them and uh, respond yeah. accordingly. Yeah. yeah and uh, sometimes with surgical patients with, that may undergo radiation, it's explaining to them that this may be a new normal. You have different anatomy um, alterations. You have um, your tissue is really hard and I'm not going to be able to loosen that up. Um, so it's maybe it might be understanding that this is your new normal and let's try to see what we can do to uh, you know, maximize your quality of life, maximize the ability to eat in a normal fashion as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to stop there, Jonathan. Okay. Um, it looks like I don't want to give you time to finish your lunch hour before you have to go back to work. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, problem, no problem. More, more out of respect to you, I can talk for uh, forever on this. No, me, me too. It's no, no sweat at all. No. Um, so before you go, though, where can people uh, find more about you and Dysphagia Cafe? They can go to dysphagiacafe.com. It's, uh, and also, we're also on Facebook, we're on Twitter, Google+, Plus, LinkedIn. You can just... Just do a Google search, uh, any topic in Dysphagia Cafe, we should come up. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. It's been great. We hope to have some more stuff out, some interesting things coming up along the way, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we'll keep in touch, okay? All right, Jeff. Thank All you. right. Take care. Thank you, Jonathan, for taking the time, taking time out of your busy schedule, and for giving up a good chunk of your lunch hour. I hope you are able to pack in a sandwich somewhere there. Um, all those links to what we just talked about in this show, especially the McNeil dysphagia protocol. I'm going to get that wrong. <laughs> this McNeil dysphagia therapy protocol um, is going to be on the website. And of course, you can probably look at those uh, show notes. It's usually within the app itself, the podcast app, if you listen to Stitcher or iTunes. So feel free to check those out as well as that article in the ASHA leader that Jonathan Jonathan feels is required reading uh, for all of his interns. Um, as always, send me suggestions uh, for uh, show ideas. If you want to be a guest in the show, I'm always happy to hear uh, uh, whatever you all have to say. And uh, there's been definitely a, an increase in the uh, in interest uh, from you listeners. And I've gotten a lot of interesting suggestions um, as of late so um, can't get to everything and of course once um, once uh, school picks up again my schedule for doing these kinds of things are just becomes much more uh, limited but thanks again for listening and uh, keep in touch take care